This is TechSnap, episode 389. Hello and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was recorded on November 15th, 2018. My name is Wes, and today I am very pleased to be joined with our special guest, Jim Salter. You may know Jim from some of his excellent contributions over the years to Ars Technica or the excellent Sanoid Project, a policy-driven snapshot management tool for that wonderful ZFS file system. Thank you for joining us, Jim, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Wes. Well, as always, it's been a big couple of weeks for internet security And if you're a Google customer, you may have noticed this firsthand. Yeah, I noticed that more than firsthand, personally. Um, I didn't really quite know what was going on, but I saw effectively from my client's perspective, roughly half the internet disappear when the uh, BGP hijack of Google space happened a couple of weeks ago. At first, we thought that, uh, you know, we just had a last mile outage. But, uh, you know, then when I realized I couldn't ping 8.8.8.8, which is Google's Anycast DNS, but I could ping Cloudflare's at uh, 1.1.1.1. Yeah, that's when we realized something a little kookier was going on. That's that's pretty much exactly what I'd heard as well. And, of course, those are the IPs I like to ping. Because, you know, they almost are always going to have better uptime than you. And so it's it's a handy diagnostic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And the particular client that first experienced this, uh, they've been having a lot of last mile problems with their coax ISP to start with. And um, they've been with me for a while. And on newer clients, I usually have 8.8.8.8 and 1.1.1.1 as root hints in, a, in their domain controllers for DNS resolution. But uh, this was a very old school client. So all they really had was Google's. And so we had no DNS resolution. And until I got in there to start pinging things, it looked like everything was just down. And then when I go and I try to ping Google Anycast, which, you know, pretty much always expect to be up and it didn't return pings, but, uh, you know, Spectrum's upstream, the gateway did. I was like, ah, okay, problem in their data center. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Excellent. Out of my hands. I can't fix this one. Yeah, exactly. And I thought it was just Spectrum at that point. Um, But uh, but no, I I eventually discovered, whoa, that's weird. 1.1.1.1 works. And I thought everything was just up again. So I go to ping, you know, four eights again just to make sure. And it's still down. I'm like okay, so I added Cloudflare's DNS as a, uh, you know, a hint in their domain controller, and that got part of the internet up. But it was really weird what, what would work and what wouldn't. Like you could, uh, you could go to portal.office.com to try to log into Office 365, but when it redirected you to the, you know, login.microsoftonline.com slash whatever, like that wouldn't come up. Oh, wow. That is weird. Yeah. Google.com would come up, but, you know, Google's Anycast DNS wouldn't. And so you just had this random grab bag of stuff working or not working. Yeah, it seems like it affected a number of their services. Really what happened is is Google lost control of several million of its IP addresses for more than an hour on Monday. Unfortunately, I mean, that's a big deal. It affected things like the like G Suite applications. It obviously affected their Anycast DNS system. I also heard it affected some of their internal services, things like the VPN some Google employees use. Yeah, uh, Google's own WAN space uh, that they, I mean, it's, it's technically WAN, but it's really just used for infrastructure in the company. A lot of that got hijacked as well. Um, I'm not sure if it was only Google stuff that got hijacked. That's all anybody's really talking about. But like I said, I saw things like, uh, you know, portions of Office 365 not being accessible. 
And um, it, it wasn't the entire internet. Uh, a couple of the articles I read said that it was mostly, quote, you know, business class ISPs that were affected that, uh, that, that blindly took the route from China Delcom. But like I noticed, uh, I had the problem with some of my clients on Spectrum business side, but I didn't have it at home on Spectrum residential and not all of my clients on Spectrum business did either. It was, it was kind of weird and random. Oh, that is interesting. It looks like Cloudflare reported that they they saw some problems, but I guess, as they said, Cloudflare's systems automatically noticed the leak and changed our routing to mitigate the effects. So they might they might have had some anticipation of this or been a little bit better prepared than others. Maybe. Um, I think they were just kind of in a better position to do that. I mean, their, their business and their investment in infrastructure isn't the same as Google's, you know? I mean, they're, they're kind of, uh, you know, they're, Cloudflare is underlaying a huge percentage of the internet right now. So they're, they're kind of a large part of the internet and they may be able to be a little bit more resilient than somebody like Google, who's really in a different space. Oh yeah, very much so, right? They're they're providing end user services, and and while Cloudflare does that to an extent, I mean, a lot of you're you're exactly right. A lot of what they do ends up being, you know, DDoS protection or, or transit or, or a million other network infrastructure services. Yeah, but like, I mean, yeah, how many sites are there out there that are hosted on AWS or hosted on Google Cloud or hosted on Azure, but the CDN and the DD, the DDoS protection, it's still Cloudflare. They're kind of everywhere. They are everywhere. That's for sure. So at first, it kind of appeared suspicious to many, in part because the, the misdirected traffic went to China Telecom, the Chinese government-owned provider that was also recently caught improperly routing other traffic. So there's kind of a history here. And it, it speaks a lot, I think, to some of the bigger problems with BGP, because it all started with Main One, which is a, a local Nigerian ISP. What looks like to have happened is they misconfigured, probably just a, a fat-fingered mistake, announced the wrong route, now, that might have had some more some more local effects, people pairing with them in, in you know, their local internet exchange points. But once China Telecom, who is a large operator with points of presence all over the world, including in North America, once they also spread that leak around, that's when we saw big problems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, BGP, it, it's kind of SMTP all over again. Uh, it hails back to that same era of the internet when it was a bunch of academic hippie nerds that just thought, oh, hey, well... Anybody that can help, helping is great. This is awesome. And they didn't really have any thoughts to security or, you know, a, a hierarchical layout of infrastructure. Um, basically, anybody can announce a route on BGP. And if you haven't taken steps to prevent it, everything else connected that can hear that, will just take it and pass it on from there. Much like, you know, in the, in the early days of email, any server was supposed to be able to catch and relay any email that it saw and try to get it one step further down the road. The, the big issue there is, like you said, you know, Main main one, the the folks who made the original mistake, you know, they're a little teeny tiny and their own mistake had a relatively local effect. But China Telecom, of course, is huge and uh, they don't have any BGP filtering in place. They will pretty much relay any route that they can see. And that's exactly what happened here. Um, I don't think China Telecom is above some shenanigans, but as far as I can tell, I don't think this was any kind of a you know, deliberate hijack on China Telecom's part. I think it was literally just, it's a huge, slotly configured prider and it amplified a mistake. Right, exactly. One of the clues to that is, well, if there was that outage, right? So what, what a lot of trace routes during this event saw was that that traffic that was headed through China Telecom, well, it just got dropped at their edge. So it never completed. That's why we noticed in other more malicious attempts, like some that were pointed out by a paper released last month by the U.S. Naval War College, 
Well, those involved routes still going through China, but with everything working. So if you're the end user, exactly. you may not notice there's a little more latency, something like that. But other than other than that, everything else works. Yeah, when uh, when you really want to indulge in some shenanigans, the traffic still comes out on the other side. Or at the very least, if it doesn't come out on the other side, um, it gets diverted to some place that looks to the end user like it's legit to capture stuff. There's not really any point in just hijacking a route and having all the traffic die. Yeah, exactly. Now, if you can keep that traffic, you can start doing malicious things. Obviously, any unencrypted traffic is, is fair game. And then, unfortunately, since there's a lot of you know people lagging behind on various TLS implementations or perfect forward security, you can use you can use flaws, things like logjam or other vulnerabilities to eventually possibly crack some of that recorded encrypted traffic. Well, not to mention, you know, once you've got control of the traffic, um, at, at this point, almost all DNS is unencrypted. So if you can capture somebody's, you know, unencrypted plain text UDP traffic, then you can hijack what name server responds. And as far as HTTPS goes, the thing that most people tend to forget is that your browser will accept a certificate from a huge number of, you know, repositories around the world, certification authorities. And if somebody's got a rogue CA and that rogue CA issues a certificate for Google.com, uh, your browser is just going to accept it if that CA is in its circle of trust. And uh, the, the the CAs configured by default in consumer browsers, it, it's an enormous list and rogue CAs pop up all the time. Yeah, and that can be especially dangerous in some of these you know larger nation state actors who can, who can apply pressure, if not overt control, on maybe some of those CAs. So it becomes a situation with a few people working together that's a lot of access to information. Yeah, and you know, even without having a rogue CA in your pocket, um, you know, you can always you can uh, you can go get a certificate for a looky a lookalike puny code domain that you actually legitimately register and get a legitimate SSL cert for. Uh, but you know, it's not Google.com. It's you know, G O and O with an umlaut, G L E dot com, or uh, you know, some of the puny code lookalikes visually literally can't be told from the actual plain ASCII but you can still register them as a domain and you can buy a perfectly legit certificate for it. And if you manage to redirect somebody there, then they're just going to see the green lock in their browser. They're going to see what looks like the site they were headed for. And, you know, they're they're just going to proceed. Right. I mean, do you even look at the, once you've typed in the address bar, do you even look at it again? Maybe you look at the lock. Okay, that's a good step. But yeah, that's, that's no protection. As long as they've done a decent job with the forgery, it's going to fool a lot of users. Yeah, I mean... Well, you know, to be perfectly fair, I'll notice, but I'm a professional paranoid. Um, you can't possibly expect most people to notice that. Yeah, exactly. And that's the big problem, of course, right? The people of the audience of this show, your readers, us, we're in a little bit different class and, and a little better protected just because we know to be paranoid and how dangerous it can be. But boy, this needs to change. You, you put it very well earlier. BGP was built in a time where, you know, if you're if you're an academic and your your friend is at another university and you want to establish, you know, a new peering relationship and exchange some routes between your two autonomous systems, well, that was a whole different thing. You call them up, you know, you go, you, you hash out a deal, you get things going. That is not the internet of today. Yeah, the original internet was basically not designed to be anything that looks like the internet that we know today. It was basically designed as the world's biggest, most heavily geographically distributed land party. <laughs> oh, I love that description. Uh, unfortunately, you know, there, there are some things that we can do. There are some attempts, things like resource public key infrastructure, RPKI, which is a cryptographic method of signing records that associate a BGP route announcement with the correct originating autonomous system. But a lot of companies, a lot of providers and ISPs, they're, they're not employing these. And as you said, a lot of them aren't even doing basic filtering. Yeah, um, 
you know, unfortunately, just like many things, there's this, uh, there's, there's always an inertia problem where you have this thing that's clearly better and would clearly be a good idea. But, you know, when you've got a lot of big commercial entities involved, uh, there's a lot of inertia and in the, I don't see how this will directly translate into me making more money. So screw it. That is very much the case. To underscore that, you know, this this happens all the time. It's not a rare event. Just last year, was it, was it last spring? Was might have been this year. There was a big deal with Amazon. Yeah, it was this year. It was uh, in April of this year. Uh, some folks hijacked the uh, BGP route for some of Amazon's IP addresses, and it was a very targeted BGP route hijack. By getting control of those IP addresses, they managed to steal about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of currency from users of a site called My Ether Wallet. And uh, just like I mentioned earlier, you know, they used a fake HTTPS certificate and um, the end users did have to click through a browser warning, but just clicking through a browser warning is it's just not enough to deter most people. So in that just two hours that the hackers had control of that route, they managed to get $150,000 worth of people's money. Yikes. Yeah, that that is a big deal. And maybe things like that, maybe a little more awareness events like this recent downtime, things that actually do impact some bottom line somewhere, maybe eventually we'll see some change. I certainly hope so. The unfortunate thing is it didn't really impact the bottom line of the ISPs who control the routers that need to be better secured. Yeah, that's right. Really, we need some some pressure. Businesses below them actually do some things, maybe more competition, more pressure. I don't know what the answer is, unfortunately, and it probably won't be anything fixed anytime soon. Probably not. Okay, moving right along, while we're talking about potential improvements to the internet that we love so dearly, well, there's been some big news this week about the next version of HTTP. Yeah, absolutely. Quick. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm actually pretty excited about this one. Uh, this is something that Google started uh, surprisingly long ago. I believe Google's initial implementation was uh, something like 2008, 2009. And uh, you know, long story short, they're, they're moving away from the TCP sessions that we know and love with HTTP, and they're re-implementing everything on UDP. Uh, this is kind of similar to what a lot of the big providers are doing for some of the larger services that people consume. They just don't realize it, like Netflix. You know, you're not getting your Netflix video over TCP. Uh, yeah, your control sessions, like when you click around with your remote or you know on your computer and you pick the movie, all that stuff is HTTP and TCP. But when you actually start playing the movie, it comes in over UDP. And the reason that they do it over UDP is because you have a much lower overhead in moving large amounts of data. And Quick aims to do the same thing with HTTP. So rather than use TCP, which has to negotiate, you know, a uh, you, you basically have to say hello with a send to the other machine, get an ACK and establish what amounts to a tunnel. And only then can you start moving data around it. You have to do this over and over again as you browse the internet. Um, Quick allows you to do the whole thing over UDP and it does the negotiations itself. So basically, rather than having to do a couple of sends and acts and then an HTTP um, request and response and all these headers, you can do all that at once. And instead of having four round trips in order to get a particular resource, you can do it only two. So you have much lower latency. It's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, that is a huge improvement. I mean, not, not only is there speed, but there's security, right? I mean, HTTP, much like BGP, it's one of these protocols. It's been around for a long time, and it came from a different era. And I think one of the reasons people have been a little hesitant, especially smaller people, there's, there's a certain amount of distrust or annoyance with implementing TLS, or especially the big push to get TLS everywhere. And I think a lot of that is because well, we've had to layer it on top. It hasn't been well-designed. It was an afterthought. 
with Quick, finally we're seeing this, you know, we're in the world where we take encryption seriously. Well, I don't know that I would really agree with that. Um, I mean, Quick doesn't have to be TLS encrypted. It's it's optional the same way that it is with HTTP versus HTTPS now. One big security difference that you get with Quick that's that's a pretty cool upgrade though is um, Quick allows you to uh, send your very first packet. Um, you, you're encrypted from the get go, where you have to establish a connection uh, in clear text and do an awful lot of negotiation in clear text before you can begin your TLS session with HTTP2, um, with Quick and HTTP3, you can start out encrypted right from the get-go. And so there's a lot less for attackers to poke at and uh, you know, maybe mess with or, or read or try to you know, get, a, uh, get a foothold in, basically. Um, and also, again, you improve your latency a lot because now instead of having to establish TCP, then establish HTTP, then establish TLS, you're just establishing a TLS connection immediately. It's the very first thing you do. That makes a lot of sense, right? And and encrypting all that extra information, yeah, that just means there's less things to spy on. And when we live in a world filled with BGP hijacks and leaks, sounds good to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you look at HTTP2 and uh, TLS right now, most sites out there now are using SNI, server name indication, so that you can have more than one domain name associated with a particular IP address, right? Because we all know we're kind of starved for IPv4 addresses. Um, the problem with that is the SNI necessarily has to occur in plain text. So somebody who's man in the middle of that traffic, they can see what site you're requesting and they can see you uh, say, this is the site that I want. Now I'd like to start a TLS session. And that gives them the opportunity, for example, they might read your SNI request for mywebsite.com and only then start uh, diverting the traffic elsewhere to, you know, like we mentioned earlier in their show, maybe a Punicode domain lookalike that will have HTTPS or whatever. And it's much harder for the user to see that something has gone wrong. That makes a lot of sense. And you know what? I'm actually kind of impressed. You know, there's some worry. I feel like there's been multiple attempts at improving HTTP, and a lot of, oftentimes Google is at the forefront. But with this week's news, it seems like we have, you know, we have a broader consensus with the IETF on board, with other companies interested in implementing this technology. I mean, Cloudflare and Facebook just recently sort of had the first real HTTP3 connection established and exchange information over that. So with larger buy-off, this might actually be something we see in the real world. Yeah, this was really kind of a textbook example of how things should go. Uh, you know, Google spearheaded it. They came up with GQuick initially quite some time ago, but uh, they made the standard open and it got turned over to the IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force. And the, ex- the development really accelerated and took off in new directions once the IETF had it. And, you know, people with a stake from all over started contributing. It went a lot further than Google had been able to take it in the time they had. I mean, that's open source isn't exactly the right word, but it's very similar. In this case, open development, open standards. That's the way it's supposed to work. This is why we want to do it this way. Okay, so that all sounds pretty good. And basing it on UDP is smart, right? As you said, lots of stuff. Netflix, uh, VoIP sessions, video game, interactivity, protocols, a lot of stuff is based on UDP. But it can also be difficult in the world of enterprise firewalls and ossified middle boxes to get anything new going through the internet. What's the situation with HTTP3 and Quick? Well, so part of the reason that they are layering it over UDP is exactly what you just mentioned, the inertia of all the existing firewalls and routers and this and that and the other that you you want this stuff to work with. Um, All those devices, they already understand UDP. Um, it would have been possible to devise this entire thing over an entirely new protocol. 
um, not UDP or TCP at all, but by layering it on top of UDP the way they're doing, uh, that means that the majority of this stuff is, you know, it, it's going to kind of just work. Uh, there are some features that are more difficult to deal with with devices like that, but most of these, honestly, they're kind of solved problems. You know, you don't really expect to get in a network somewhere that hasn't deliberately said, all right, screw you, no Netflix, and not have your Netflix work. There are, there are certainly going to be some enterprises that they'll need to adjust their rule sets to not break quick sessions, but I don't think you're really going to need to see entirely new equipment for the most part. That is a big difference, right? Like if you can if you can get a patch from from your upstream vendor or just just easily make a few changes, that's a lot easier to convince a business to do rather than buying a whole new three hundred thousand dollar router. Well, in most cases, I don't I don't even think it's going to be so much needing to patch firmware is just you know where you've got uh, network administrators in a more lockdown environment that have you know big complicated rule sets. They're designed to only allow the traffic that they want to allow. They're going to have to figure out how to accommodate quick in that. Um, I don't really see that as being a huge deal, to be honest with you. Once we start seeing some proliferation of Quick in use, as it becomes more and more legitimate, um, I don't think it's going to be that hard to build those rule sets. There's not a whole lot of difference between keeping a Quick session going and you know not screwing up somebody's Netflix or their uh, you know their DNS, uh, their game streams. You have it. Like I said, it's for the most part, it's kind of a solved problem. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, right? We already have UDP systems in place, and I mean, Quick even has some things in there. They have the they have a notion of a connection ID. They've they've acknowledged that NAT exists in the world. Enterprise firewalls exist, so it's been designed with that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, keeping a quick session going, it's um, I don't see any reason for that to be any more difficult than not breaking an open VPN or a WireGuard session. Uh, the concept is pretty similar either way. You've got a continuous session that's going over UDP, and just rather than TCP handling the uh, the, the state of the connection at the protocol layer, um, basically the the application is handling it at the application layer. Which brings up one of the other you know kind of interesting and I don't know for me as a sysadmin, it's half interesting, half alarming implications of Quick. <laughs> so your browser is actually going to be in control of the Quick protocol. And it's entirely possible to upgrade the protocol just in the browser itself. Like your operating system might never even change, but just your browser makes changes to how it operates with Quick. That is a great point, right? You're no longer relying on whatever version of the TCP stack is implemented in the kernel that you, the admin, control. It's the end user, the software the end user is running, which layers it on top. Right, but at the same time, you know, imagine if like, uh, you know, wget and curl on the command line and Google Chrome and Firefox, you know, in the, the user application space, imagine they were all using like their own application layer rolled TCP implementation. It's a little scary, right? Oh yeah, that that definitely is, and it'll it'll be an interesting road. There's lots of advantages here. I'm excited about the improvements, but uh, I think there's still a few kinks. Uh, we'll have to learn how to live in the world of Quick. Ideally, I, I think eventually it would make the most sense to me as a system administrator to say, you know, we should have a system library, like a system wide library, whether you're on Windows or Mac or Linux. Uh, there should be a default library available that handles the Quick API. And in a sane world, your browsers and your command line utilities and everything else would just go through that API. And you would still then at the end of the day, you'd be using your operating system wide, single, sensible, sane implementation. 
But I've already seen some browser manufacturers talking excitedly about the possibilities of just doing it all in their own application. So I don't know. We'll have to see how it plays out. If you're as curious and excited as we are, well, we've got a whole bunch of links in the show notes. So you can find that techsnap.systems slash 389. All right, well, that was almost too much of a, of a happy story for the TechSnap program, so let's turn to something that I find pretty darn depressing, but unfortunately not surprising. This week we heard some news about a 100,000-strong botnet made up, yes, of consumer routers. Shock and surprise. Yeah, so, you know, in this one, the issue is that an awful lot of routers out there are using Broadcom chipsets. They've got an unpatched vulnerability that uh, goes back years and years in the Broadcom chipset itself. If you've ever looked in the configuration of your router and you notice something called universal plug and play, uh, what that actually does is it allows basically any computer or device inside your network to just decide on its own, hey, uh, I want to have, you know, port number so-and-so forwarded to me. And that device can then tell the router and with absolutely no security checks whatsoever, the router just says, yep, here we go. Here's your port. Now, you know, things on the internet can talk directly to you. Uh, This is used legitimately for things like game consoles or, you know, games that you install on your computer so that you don't have to know enough to be able to go in and configure your router to open a port in order for inbound traffic to, you know, to come hit your application, your device. But it's just not a great idea to have arbitrary things, basically anything inside your network, be able to, uh, you know, redirect traffic inbound like that. And I already kind of hate universal plug and play for what it is and what it's supposed to be. <laughs> but the uh, the bug here is that it was possible for devices to probe routers with these Broadcom chipsets that had universal plug and play enabled from the WAN side, and they could get a little bit of information about how it was implemented. And with a little bit of trickery, they could manage to get universal plug and play to cause the router itself to listen to inbound traffic. So the router itself would consume this data on the port opened up with universal plug and play. And by doing that, then the attackers could force the router to download uh, shell code that would allow them basically to get a shell on the router and install software to do whatever their bidding happened to be. And it looks like what their bidding happened to be in this case was using those routers to relay spam. Of course. Yeah, we see it We see it with spam. We see it with distributed denial of service attacks. There's a lot of reasons why you might want to use a router, right? I mean, they're frequently left unpatched. They're almost always, always on and connected to the internet. And hardly anyone knows how to configure them, which I guess is, is really why UPnP exists. But boy, when I saw that it was, you know, you could probe it from the WAN side, I, I just, I almost closed the tab, walked <laughs> away. I was like, I'm going to come back to this later. I can't, why would you do that? You know, I I wish I could say that it surprised me, but it really didn't. (sighs) Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's definitely a problem. UPnP is another one of those protocols where it's just a little too custom. It's like HTTP in some ways, but 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 a little bit off. It's it's from the '90s. It's SOAP and and XML, and yes, it's handy, but you know, a little bit of know-how, a little bit better interface from router designers, or just (sighs) a better world. We wouldn't we wouldn't need these things. There could even be some improvements, right? Like, it's hard to even find an implementation of UPnP that someone security conscious can use. You know, something where you could at least whitelist, whitelist MAC addresses or something. Now, that's not perfect. There's a million ways to get around that. But there's not even those steps that are taken by implementations. Well, you know, I mean, honestly, you've kind of destroyed the entire purpose of universal plug and play by the time you do that. Because you've got to go into the router and whitelist an address, then you might as well have just gone into the router and, you know, opened the port and mapped it to the device you wanted to begin with really universal plug and play just completely needs to die 
Uh, it was never a good idea in the first place. It's superfluous and pretty much irrelevant in the modern era. Because in the modern era, if you want to have a if you want to have a persistent connection to a device behind NAT, the way that you do that is you have a device in a data center that's listening, and you push that connection outbound from the device behind the NAT. Because keep in mind, once that TCP connection is open. Once it's been opened, even though you can only open it from the inside out, as long as it's open, that connection is two-way. So if, you, if you've got a machine in a data center B, and you've got two client devices, each behind a separate NAT at A and C, the way you get A and C to talk to one another is not to have this weird automagical UPnP thing uh, you know, on machine C and its router that will allow it to reconfigure its own router what you do is you have A and C both reach out to B in the data center, and then they talk over those two tunnels that are bridged together. Uh, you never need to, re- you, you still meet the objective of UPnP in the first place that you never had to configure a router because you're just taking advantage of the fact that outbound traffic by default isn't filtered, it isn't blocked. So both machines just go outbound to a trusted intermediator in a data center, which would be like, you know, Blizzard servers, right? If you want to, you know, play World of Warcraft or whatever, that's how this stuff works. Uh, you reach out to the data center, that's where the server is, and uh, you go from there. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Again, I mean, back in the 90s, maybe it was different, but but these days, not only is it easy for really anyone to get a server with a public IP4 address and control over, over that system on any number of VPS providers, but pretty much any big company that has an internet presence has those too. And we have a lot of well-established NAT-breaking, NAT-traversal algorithms, software, and techniques out there, you don't need universal plug-and-play. So if you, you know, you can go check the show notes. There's lists of all the affected systems. Unfortunately, as you said, Jim, Broadcom's a huge vendor in this space, a huge upstream for, for tons of implementations. So this is unfortunately widespread. So if you have one of these, you know, see if, see if your particular impl- implementation is patched, get a new router, pick a better router vendor, and whatever system you have, go disable all the services that you're not actually using and especially disable UPnP. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, that's the other thing about this. I mean, yeah, this this bug is, it's really bad and it's shameful. And part of the problem is that, you know, the vendors, very, very few vendors actually have, you know, any kind of a release cycle of firmware to patch these kind of bugs. And even when they do, you know, there's there's very rarely a mechanism that actually works either to get users to go apply them or to just automatically apply them, which really, it's really how things ought to be done in this day and age. You ought to just be getting automatic security upgrades because you can't rely on users to apply them. But anyway, the, the, the thing is, if you had gone into your router and you had disabled UPnP, um, I'm not aware of any router that was vulnerable from the WAN with UPnP actually disabled, whether the chipset was still vulnerable or not. Right, see, so, so a, little, a little bit of thinking, a little bit of security up front, it can go a long way, even if maybe you don't, you aren't in a position where you can upgrade your router this instant. Absolutely. You know, one of the unfortunate things, though, is uh, if you have one of these affected models of router and it's, you know, been open to the Internet with UPnP enabled, uh, once it's been infected, nobody's really quite sure yet what it takes to get the router not infected anymore. Most likely, something as simple as power cycling the router will usually clear out this kind of malware because it's usually just resident in RAM, but it's entirely possible that the botnet could have reflashed itself into the firmware, and nobody really knows right now with this particular botnet, so it's better to play it safe than sorry and just replace it. Uh, honestly, you know, decent quality routers have gotten really inexpensive. Uh, I usually recommend things in the you know $150 and up range, but if you're on a budget, uh, you know, a $60 Archer A8 
Um, it's really pretty good performance. It's got really good Wi-Fi coverage. It is at the end of the day still a budget router, but it's sixty bucks and it'll get you covered. Right, and for I mean for a lot of users, unless you have some some real specific high performance use cases, that'll be more than enough for your standard Wi-Fi network, all the devices you might have, and you know to let you watch Netflix when you want. Yeah, um, usually really the big thing when if a budget router isn't enough. Usually your big move then is not going to be a more expensive router. It's usually just going to be jumped straight to mesh. Right. You know, that's, that is an interesting little segue. So uh, over the years, you've written some great articles, things, things about the various Wi-Fi implementations and systems that are out there to all the way of, you know, the, the great couple of years ago, the great R's guide to, to building your own router. <laughs> so are you, are you still doing that thing? I'll, I'll admit I have a, a homebrew Linux router running at my house that I, I like a lot, but it is a different landscape than even just a few years ago. You see things like Eero or, or Google's Wi-Fi systems that not only have a better user experience, you know, handy apps, but they have you know more robust software and automatic updates. So what are you what what are you doing these days? So yeah, I'm still uh, I'm still rocking the homebrew. I'm still running uh, you know vanilla Ubuntu with uh, IP tables, firewall, and and masquerading. And uh, honestly, I would not switch from that to anything else. It's insanely high performance. And given that I am already a very senior Linux admin, um, it's, it's easy for me to maintain. With that said, it's not really a project from somebody for somebody who isn't either already a senior sysadmin or who isn't uh, an enthusiast or somebody who's looking to learn either because they think it's cool or because they want to parlay it into a network administration job somewhere. Um, if you're just an end user that just wants to, you know, get on with your day, these, <laughs> this, it's definitely not for you to try to roll your own Linux router. You'll discover when it breaks that, well, you're the one on hook. And yeah. especially if you're supporting, you know, your family, your friends, they're not going to be happy with you. No, they're not. Um, but you know, the cool thing is, you know, if you do know what you're doing with that, um, you know, once you get it all up and running security wise, you're in a really great place. A lot of people make the assumption that, you know, oh, you're really going to screw yourself over with security if you do that. But it's kind of the other way around. There's a lot less attack surface because you don't have this graphical user interface that's been designed by people getting a lot of pressure from, you know, the, uh, the, the bean counters to make it look shiny and attract new users. You've just got the actual interface to the firewall rule set. It's very clean. There's a uh, there's not really any extra stuff to go wrong. Uh, there won't be any UPnP, for example, unless you put it there yourself, which hopefully you wouldn't have. Right. Um, and the other thing is, you know, like you said, you get automatic updates. I mean, when I set up one of these things, I turn on the uh, the unattended upgrades package when I'm doing the installation, and that automatically downloads and applies any security updates that come down from Canonical the moment they're made available. You know, I'm not waiting until patch Tuesday of next month. I'm not waiting until I remember to do it, you know, yada, yada, yada. They just, they get downloaded and applied and that's it. The only thing that you won't get immediately applied that way is a kernel upgrade. And you can just schedule a reboot every now and then when you're pretty sure you won't be using the system in order to get the new kernel. And you never really have to touch it again after that. It's pretty cool. That is perfect. And I mean, if you're really paranoid, uh, Ubuntu is happy to sell you a support contract to, to use for their live patch service in the cases where that one, you know, the vulnerability fits into that that cycle. I also think, you know, it, it's nice to have that control too, where you can be a little more resilient. You know, I'm thinking of, of Sanoid or, or 
other tools tools there, you can have snapshots, right? You can have complicated file systems. You can have an easy backup schedule so that even if you do have a catastrophic hardware failure, it should be pretty easy to go, you know, get a replacement box or shift it onto another machine and get it up and running again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I keep these things pretty simple. I Believe it or not, I'm actually not running ZFS on these things because there's just not that much to back up. That's one of the things I really like about it. I mean, basically, if I've got a copy of the IP tables rule set, that's that's pretty much it. That's that's all it is. Uh, you know, you do a 10-minute install of Ubuntu on another machine, and you slap the same rule set down, and you're done. Your router is back. So one of the things I've enjoyed about doing this is, um, I'm not doing it currently, but at one of my previous jobs, you know, we had a kind of complicated corporate VPN system, and I was able to split up some nice split horizon DNS and VPN so that I could I could connect to the systems I needed to at work and my home network at the same time and not have to worry about you know, I could set up all the firewalls right so that they, you know, users there couldn't talk to me. It also is, you know, easy to set up some custom VPN stuff or other solutions. I wonder, do you have any favorite little hacks or customizations on your side? You know, honestly, not so much. Um, I'm extremely, extremely paranoid. I love it. Uh, for good reason when it comes to InfoSec stuff. Back in, I want to say it was 2008, uh, I got rolled up by a, an advanced persistent threat that was, uh, oh. they, they used me as the way into a target which was a, cli- a very high profile client of mine. And, uh, you know, we don't have time to go through that whole story, but I will just right. say it involved them actually getting a shell on my personal computer in my house and going from there to get a shell on their actual target, which made them incredibly difficult to, f- to figure out where they were coming from because I didn't see anything abnormal. All I saw was logins using my user account from my IP address during the times of day I would normally log in. Wow, I can really see how that would that would destroy a lot of trust, and that is legit paranoia right there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, nobody's perfect, but I am a much harder target since then. And uh, you are not getting into my network from the outside. So there's not so much in the in the way of like neat tricks to get access to the inside because you can't have access on the inside. Period. So what kind of what kind of hardware do you have on your your home network? You know, just a Linux box on the edge. Do you have a an enterprise level switch or just some some home consumer gear? Uh, so it's um it's mostly you know call it prosumer. Um, I've got uh, a mix of little cheapy desktop switches and a couple of uh, TP Link Jetstream managed switches. I'm not really doing that much with the management features. I more have it just to uh, to have the options there. I use devices like those Jetstream Jetstream switches, you know, at actual client sites and my actual work where you've got a much larger environment. It's really good to be able to, you know, isolate where you've got problem traffic coming from. You know, like if you end up with a rogue DHCP server on your network somewhere or, uh, you know, somebody ARP spoofing and and trying to, you know, take over your router's IP address. Um, Usually relatively innocently, you know, somebody just brought in a router from home and tried to use it as a switch in their office. But if you've got if you've got 100 desktops, it's a nightmare trying to track all that down if you don't have management su- features at the switch level. At home, yeah, I, I really don't particularly need that. So the switch stuff, whatever. Um, the Wi-Fi stuff is relatively cool. I've got a set of uh, Ubiquiti UAP AC light access points. So those are, you know, uh, wired backhaul access points, 802.11ac. Um, although I actually have them... They're locked down to only a single narrow 2.4 gigahertz channel so that I can leave the house Wi-Fi network up when I'm testing Wi-Fi stuff at home. Ah, that makes a lot of sense, right? You can can install other new interesting systems, play with it, and you know that you're not going to have interference from your home system. 
Exactly. So basically, you know, the, the home network is always up, but it's locked down on uh, channel 11. Um, I, I want to say 10 megahertz bandwidth. I'd have to go look to be sure. It's relatively low bandwidth, but the thing is, I've got a ton of these access points scattered all over the house. So there are no long range connections. Um, everything is getting as much bandwidth as it can because it's connected to a very nearby access point. And, uh, you know, from there, everything's wired backhaul. So that's sufficient for my Wi-Fi needs. And in the meantime, the entire rest of the 2.4 and 5 gigahertz spectrum is clean. So when I go to test a mesh Wi-Fi kit, I don't have to tell the kids, you know, oh, sorry, you can't, you know, you can't watch cartoons on your tablet. Daddy's testing Wi-Fi. I can leave them up and running. Right. That just doesn't, that doesn't work right after a while. Yeah. uh, You just get too frustrated. Well, it also means I can do some pretty neat stuff. Like uh, I use Chromebooks to test uh, these, these Wi-Fi networks and I use a USB three Wi-Fi NIC in the Chromebook as my actual test adapter. The Chromebooks have, you know, an onboard Intel adapter. And what I'm able to do because of what I'm doing with the house network is I can have the onboard NIC in the Chromebook attached to the house network and I can use that for command and control. And that can be up no matter what's going on or how crappy the thing is that I'm testing on its own network because they don't interfere with one another. And that that's ended up being a huge boon because a lot of the time the things that I test, they're terrible <laughs> and you can hardly get a connection you know, to some of the test sites in the house. So if you're trying to actually initiate the test over the Wi-Fi that sucks to begin with, you end up spending hours just trying to get tests to run on something you know is going to be garbage and you really kind of don't even want to finish the test to begin with. Right, when you're already trying to collect data, careful analysis, the last thing you want is unneeded complications. Exactly, but if you've got good low bandwidth Wi-Fi that doesn't interfere on another adapter as your command and control network, you can immediately and reliably kick off your test and then just get your terrible results quickly and you know go on about your day. That is very clever. Well, you know, I I gotta say, Jim, you've really made, you've done a great job, and I I love this because it's a good thing to do. I think you've made all of the people here that listen to TechSnap, all of our wonderful audience, we're all going to be a little bit more paranoid thanks to you. Yay! That's a good thing for security. (laughs) Is there anything else you want to mention, or or just, where where can people find more of you? Uh, I'm at JRSSNet on Twitter. Um, that's also, uh, that, that's derived from my blog, which is at JRS-S.net. Um, you won't really find a whole lot of funny stuff at the blog. Well, you won't find any like, you know, funny, lighthearted stuff at the blog. It's entirely a technical blog, you know, sysadmin type stuff, um, network configurations, uh, you know, sounds perfect. ZFS benchmarking, you name it. Oh, if people are interested in ZFS, which I suspect many of our audience are due to the history of this program, well, th- go go check out Sanoid. It's it's really a handy system. I, I was using it even before I knew that you were the author of it. I was just you know someone recommended it. I was like, this is this is great. It's got simple configuration, makes it really easy to have a robust system. Fantastic. I should also mention uh, if you want to find more of me, you can go to arstechnica.com and you can just search for my name there. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining. It's wonderful to have an expert of your caliber and you know to help shed some light on these security stories this week. Thanks, Wes. It's been fun. And that'll bring us to the end of this week's episode of TechSnap. But don't worry, you can find all the episodes or subscribe to our RSS feed over at techsnap.systems. And you can find the show notes there. You can find information on all of our hosts and, and guests like, like Jim here. And go to techsnap.systems contact to find all the ways 
to get in touch. We especially always love hearing your war stories. You can also go find all the great shows on the network. In particular, if you haven't already, go check out the new rebooted User Error if you want a little lighthearted Linux open source and life-related fun. Again, that's jupiterbroadcasting.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. 